Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, or good morning, depending upon where you are. I'm uh, Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to the release of our new policy paper, The Backbone of JADC2, Satellite Communications for Information Age Warfare. It was written by General Kevin Chili Chilton, uh, our Explorer Chair for Space Warfighting Studies at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence, or MI Space, and Lucas Ottenried, a senior analyst here at MI Space, who are both with us today. And we're also very fortunate to be joined on our panel by Dr. David Voss and Stephen Forbes. Dr. Voss is the director of Spectrum Warfare Center at the Space Warfighting Analysis Center, or SWAC, where he leads the team responsible for the analytic foundations of the Space Force's force design efforts. Mr. Forbes is the DARPA program manager for Blackjack, a joint DARPA Space Systems Command AFRL program that's helping to demonstrate the military utility of next generation space constellations. So welcome gentlemen, and thanks very much uh, for uh, joining us today. Um, to kick things off, let me offer a couple of words of background. Uh, this report comes as the Department of Defense is developing new concepts to maintain our competitive advantage against China and Russia. These concepts share a common theme, that being the importance of speed and integration of information. So we've got to be able to rapidly and seamlessly collect, process, and share information to achieve accurate situational awareness, to improve the speed and quality of command decisions, and then to integrate operations to meet our mission requirements. In essence, that's what JADC2 is all about. However, specific requirements needed to operationalize JADC2 um, are still being defined. Now, our latest policy paper is intended to help shed some light on one of the key components of JADC2, that being space-based communications. As the report's title suggests, it highlights how maturing technologies such as laser communications and new space architecture designs will ensure DOD's SATCOM enterprise serves as the backbone for JADC2 initiatives to enable decisive all-domain operations. So with that little bit of a background, what I'm gonna do now is turn this over to the author of the report uh, to provide a summary of the paper, um, followed by some brief remarks from our guest speakers, uh, and then we'll jump into Q&A. So over to you, General Chilton and uh, Lucas for the presentation. Thanks, General Deptula. And uh, thanks for all the folks who, the participants who have joined us today. We've got a good turnout and uh, really appreciate the support. Before we begin, I think it's important to say that by protocol, they put my name first on, re on the report, but the gentleman, my teammate here, Lucas, has really, really um, made uh, strong contributions to this effort. And indeed, the Yeoman's work was done by Lucas. And I also want to give a shout out to General Larry Stutzream Stutz, who also had his fingerprints on this report, which I think is an excellent piece of work. And, and now Lucas and I would like to give you a brief summary of the Mitchell Space's latest report. Uh, we'll start with a few charts here. And it's a report on why we believe a combination of LEO, MEO, and GEO constellations of satellites linked together by optical communications can and should be the linchpin of DOD's Joint All-Domain Command and Control Architecture, or JADC2. Next chart, please. I think a, a logical question is why now? Why, why, why did we put this, put this report out at this time? Well, we're releasing it at a time when DOD is thinking through how it intends to deter and defeat great power aggression. The transition to planning for great power competition and conflict poses multiple challenges for DOD's SATCOM enterprise. For the sake of brevity, I'll just mention three of them. First, we know that DOD's emerging all-domain warfighting concepts are creating new and more demanding requirements for its SATCOM enterprise. Second, DOD is working hard to define these and other requirements for its JADC2 architecture. And our report, our report is intended to help inform some of those requirements. 
And thirdly, our warfighters are accustomed to operating in a world where adversaries could not target our SATCOM capabilities. This is certainly not the case today. Space is not a sanctuary, and our SATCOM systems must be more resilient and agile if they are to provide the secure on-demand connectivity required by our warfighters. The good news is there are promising technologies such as laser, laser communications and new force designs that will help address these and other new requirements. The bottom line is these technologies combined with the consolidation of responsibility for the SATCOM enterprise in the US Space Force has created a unique opportunity to build the systems our warfighters will need in the coming decades. Next chart, please. This quick overview of our current MIL-SATCOM enterprise will help give you a baseline understanding of why change is needed. Most MIL-SATCOM satellites are now in geosynchronous orbits where they maintain a fixed position relative to the ground. This is advantageous and this it allows them to provide continuous coverage of up to 42% of the Earth, including coverage over areas where our forces might need to operate that lack other communication networks. However, it is also true that our SATCOM systems have become larger, more complex, and more expensive over time. And this is because DOD prioritized improving their performance, longevity, and efficiency, which also increased their costs and reduced the number of satellites that DOD could afford to buy. And given the historic high cost to launch satellites into orbit, it made good sense to pack as much capability as possible into a single satellite. So while our SATCOM architecture is extremely efficient, it is also brittle, especially in a space environment that is now contested. Another aspect worth pointing out is that numerous services and other organizations have been responsible for SATCOM acquisition and operation. These organizations tended to focus on their mission requirements, which contributed to the development of a fragmented SATCOM enterprise. And vendor proprietary equities, as well as overclassification issues also contributed to the problem. The result is our SATCOM systems are very well vertically integrated, but have very little flexibility. Next chart, please. At this point, I'd like to turn the briefing over to Lucas, who will expand on these points. All right, thank you, sir. Uh, so General Deptula highlighted at the front sort of the, the basic premise of JADC2, but I just like to add here that space-based communications are gonna be absolutely essential to DOD's plans for JADC2. And as just one example, you know, a core tenant of the concept is the ability to connect any sensor to the best available shooter in path agnostic ways. And although there are a multitude of ways to pass data, the increased ranges and distributed way in which US forces intend to operate uh, in the Indo-Pacific and elsewhere, inevitably makes passing high volumes of information through space necessary. Uh, and as General Chilton said, you know, DOD's current SATCOM systems and architectures are not sufficient to support its new all-domain warfighting concepts. And so I'll just mention three deficiencies in particular that we address in our report. Uh, so the first is there's insufficient bandwidth to accommodate the larger amounts of data being generated by ISR systems. And at the same time, next generation systems are increasingly reliant on external sources of information to function and more data intensive forms of information at that. So you really have you know, both a supply and demand problem in terms of moving information from where it is to where it needs to get to. And, and this shortcoming was, was highlighted during the most recent uh, project convergence exercise. Uh, the second is the high latency associated with sending a signal 32,000 kilometers up to satellites in GEO, uh, which is prohibitive for an increasing number of military tasks, such as uh, some forms of time-sensitive targeting, uh, and also for capabilities such as augmented reality displays or remotely piloted systems, where you need information that reflects the real-time reality. And third uh, is the lack of interoperability of current systems that, uh, that we touched on earlier. You know, this is definitely a DOD-wide problem, uh, for sure. Uh, but I think it's particularly acute uh, for SATCOM. And, and this is a, a big problem because, you know, network interoperability is going to be absolutely critical uh, to enabling disparate joint systems to interact effectively. And, and that's just simply not the case today. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so General Chilton also mentioned the growing threat uh, posed by adversary counter space capabilities. Um, and I think it's useful to sort of take a, a quick step back 
uh, to sort of think about how both China and Russia approach warfare in the information age. I think you know, both militaries have adopted uh, an information-centric warfighting strategy that prioritizes achieving information superiority as their main line of effort in conflict. So you know, much in the same way that we talk about air superiority as a precondition to success, in their way of thinking, information superiority is a precondition to a successful military operation. And, and they also know that space capabilities are a major source and conduit of information for the US military. And so they view these assets as high priority targets. And this is why in their way of thinking, you know, future conflicts are likely to start in the space and cyber domains. And, and if they don't start there, they're gonna rapidly extend into those domains. And so China and Russia have both developed their military doctrine, organizations and capabilities to contest or deny US space operations. So for the PLA, its strategic support force is sort of the focal point uh, for its information operations, uh, including space uh, and integrating that into their joint operations. And for Russia, most of its military space operations have been consolidated within its reorganized aerospace forces. And so both recognize that use of the space domain has provided the US with enormous warfighting advantages over the past 30 years. But at the same time, they view DOD's dependence on its brittle space architecture as an exploitable vulnerability. And so both have capabilities to target every aspect of the US space architecture. So that includes you know, the satellites on orbit, uh, the comms links that connect the various nodes together, uh, the ground infrastructure that supports them, but also the data that these things generate and transport. Next slide, please. Uh, so what can DOD do to address these challenges? Well, uh, as General Tilton mentioned, what's needed is, is a hybrid architecture that leverages SATCOM networks across multiple orbital regimes and that ties these various satellite nodes, you know, both within and across different networks together using laser communications. Uh, and I think this is a key point, you know, Proliferated small sats, uh, particularly in low Earth orbit, are, are absolutely critical part of the solution. But these are meant to complement, not replace existing assets in geo. You know, I think both are needed and provide you know, important and complementary capabilities. Um, but here I'm just going to mention four key things that we think proliferated LEO small sats can sort of bring to the table. And so starting with reduced latency, right? It, it takes a lot less time to send a signal a few hundred kilometers up to LEO than 32,000 kilometers to geo. Because light travels through the vacuum of space faster than the glass inside of fiber optic cables, over longer distances, you can actually get lower latency through the space than the fastest available terrestrial networks. Uh, you also get better overall coverage. Um, you know, because LEO small sats are constantly in motion relative to the Earth, you end up getting coverage in areas like the Arctic uh, that otherwise wouldn't be prioritized, uh, particularly by commercial companies. And because their look angles are constantly changing relative to the user on the ground, you know, across a large constellation, uh, you have a better chance of having at least one satellite in your line of sight at all times, especially in areas that have uh, terrain features that can obscure your view of, of overhead assets in geo. Uh, you also get greater overall network capacity. So while it's true that an individual small sat in LEO uh, will not have the same uh, bandwidth capacity as a, as a typical geo satcom, you know, particularly newer high throughput satellites, the overall network capacity of a proliferated constellation is gonna be typically a much greater just because of the much larger number of satellites that are in that constellation. Uh, and these numbers are also the basis for getting significantly improved resilience. Uh, so the greater numbers means that there's a lot more targets that the adversary has to worry about. You know, it has to be able to track them, needs to be able to prioritize which ones to target and then actually attack them. Um, and also the network is also gonna degrade uh, much more gracefully. So as you know, where the, where's the loss of a few monolithic satellites in geo would result in a catastrophic failure of the system a proliferated LEO constellation uh, could withstand the loss of more nodes before losing significant capability. Uh, and I think it's also worth noting that, you know, it's a lot faster and cheaper to reconstitute small sats in LEO, whether that's, you know, using on-orbit spares or, or satellites that are stored in the ground. Uh, you really can't do that with geosatellites in, in a, you know, in practical timelines. Next slide, please. But, you know, these proliferated constellations alone are, are not the answer. Uh, DoD also needs optical communications uh, that will help it get the most out of its proliferated layered architectures. And so just at a technical level, you know, laser comms give you a huge boost in performance that, you know, can't be achieved by radio frequency communications that are used today. And that starts with just an order of magnitude improvement in data rates. And that's just sort of a, a sort of a baseline benchmark that these laser comm companies are targeting. Sort of the upper bound on what the improvement in, in throughput will be could actually be much more than that. Um, 
these are also much more efficient um, just because uh, they can be put into a smaller form factor and they consume less power. Um, this is because it's a really highly concentrated signal. So really what you're getting is the most data per watt. Um, and these sort of size and power consumption considerations are particularly important when you're talking about space where both those things are gonna be an absolute premium, uh, particularly as you sort of move towards these smaller form factor satellite buses. And then the third factor I'd wanna highlight is just the, the low probability of detection, low probability of intercept capability of these things. So, right, it's a highly directional uh, beam that has very minimal spillage. So it's actually really hard to detect these transmissions. Uh, and even if you're able to detect them, they're very difficult to disrupt. And doing so is gonna put you in a position where you're highly susceptible to, to counter detection and then potential countermeasures by, by the good guys. Um, you know, so given these capabilities, uh, you know, what are the most promising uses for laser comms? Uh, we think a good initial application should be to use them as uh, cross-links for satellites that are either on the same or adjacent orbital planes, uh, across orbital regimes, and eventually out to cis lunar space as well. You know, uh, but just to focus quickly on the, on the LEO portion of this, um, these optical cross-links are how DoD can overcome the limited coverage footprints of individual LEO satellites and their constant motion relative to the Earth. Right? So absent these crosslinks that allow satellites to communicate directly with one another, the, the ground infrastructure that you need to support these constellations would be enormous. Um, and it also adds a, a significant amount of complexity um, and time in, time in terms of trying to get information from where it is to where it needs to be. So you need this ability to move information through the space layer, and that's done through these crosslinks. Um, and so you know, taking these crosslinks, if you have multiple terminals on a given satellite, uh, on any given satellite, and you combine this with an autonomous mission management system, that's the basis for forming a, a self-healing mesh network in space that can relay data through the fastest possible route that's available. Um, and it can also adaptively route around threatened or disabled satellites. So, you know, as an adversary is attempting to disrupt your communications, you can find an available uh, pathway in order to get your information through to who needs it. Um, and you can also use these optical terminals to potentially connect disparate constellations together, right? It's not just within a given network. Um, and you can either do this using, using uh, common standards uh, for the terminals. So think of what SDA is doing with its published open standard. Um, and so, for example, it recently contracted a, a commercial company to plug its synthetic aperture radar satellites uh, directly into the transport layer using these compatible terminals. Um, or potentially, you can also use gateways with uh, reconfigurable terminals like what DARPA is uh, currently pursuing through its Space Bacon program, right? So that these otherwise incompatible networks might be able to connect with each other to distribute information through you know, a much denser, uh, you know, much higher capacity overall uh, architecture. Um, and then just to this, uh, the last main bullet here, you know, it's not just about the ability to rapidly and securely transport data through space, right? We also wanna be able to bring actionable information down to the terrestrial warfighter. Uh, and there are some additional challenges that, that come with propagating a laser through the atmosphere, um, but these effects are relatively well understood uh, and they're both technical and operational planning workarounds that can help mitigate the, the impacts of these on performance. Um, but you know, still given these considerations, we think a good initial candidate uh, for integrating optical terminals would be on high altitude airborne systems. And this is both because they can operate above uh, most of the weather phenomena that can impact laser performance but these are also exactly the types of platforms that could benefit from the improved performance that laser communications provide. And you know, that's, that's both in terms of you know, leveraging the improved throughput so you can fully exploit the enormous amount of information that you know, the multiple sensor packages that these, pay, that these platforms uh, carry collect, and, but also exploiting that sort of low probability of intercept, low probability of detection, uh, anti-jam capability that lasers provide, right? The ability to push these platforms into contested areas um, you know, where they'll be able to rapidly send and receive information, uh, whereas traditional RF SATCOM might be more vulnerable to detection and disruption. Next slide, please. Uh, so just to wrap up, you know, uh, as, as we've talked through here, you know, the U.S. Space Force, Space Force uh, should proliferate, distribute, disaggregate, and diversify its SATCOM options across multiple orbital regimes, but, and we think especially in low Earth orbit. And then it should connect these various nodes and networks together using optical intersatellite links to exploit the full potential of what these satellites can potentially provide. And then DoD should also conduct rapid experimentation uh, and demonstrate optical terminals on airborne and terrestrial systems, but focusing on where it makes technical and operational sense. Um, and then I just wanna focus a bit on these last two points on the slide. So, you know, starting with the fourth bullet, you know, 
DOD has long relied on, on commercial SACOM services, and there are limits to what DOD can do on its own in-house. Uh, so I think taking advantage of, of growing investment and more frequent satellite construction and launches, the Space Force should really explore options to expand its partnerships with allied nations and commercial providers to host government payloads uh, on their satellite buses, and then also explore you know, new ways to acquire uh, commercial SATCOM services. And there's a lot of really exciting work going on in this realm. And then lastly, you know, transitioning to the kind of architecture that we've described requires a terrestrial infrastructure capable of supporting it. And really this is about being able to handle uh, the greater complexity and speed uh, of these lower orbit constellations, but then also about promoting greater interoperability, right? Some of this can be done you know, through the space layer, but a lot of that is gonna also have to come through the uh, terrestrial infrastructure. And, and our report goes into a lot more detail about those things uh, and also happy to discuss that further. Uh, but I'll, I'll stop here and, and turn it back over to General Shelton for a couple more conclusions and uh, closing remarks. General. Thanks, Lucas. Thank you. This is hard work, um, putting this all together and find and describing and writing up the requirements to uh, actually field a system like this. And uh, that hard work is work that needs to be done by the US Space Force and specifically by their Space War Fighting and Analysis Center who's chartered to lay out these architectures and uh, do the trades for um, the trade space uh, assessments for what to invest in and what to divest and determine the critical path that will lead to the future SATCOM enterprise uh, much as we had just described. Uh, and then lastly, the US Space Force must work closely, we believe with the industrial base, with our industrial partners to accelerate the fielding of these capabilities. Transitioning to a layered architecture that includes proliferated constellations will require industry to manufacture satellites at an unprecedented rate. And to make this happen, the Space Force, and not just the Space Force, the entire Department of Defense acquisition system must remove barriers to manufacturing new systems at scale, particularly if it wants to take advantage of the growing ecosystem of space companies beyond the traditional space primes, who will also be important in the solution to this issue. I'd like to close by saying, uh, we don't really have time to waste in, in, in our view uh, in fielding this type of capabilities. These, these are critical uh, capabilities that uh, JADC2 will depend on to be to achieve the vision that uh, our warfighters have for a future joint command and control system. We've heard a lot about the need for hypersonic weapons, but laser comms and other technologies that we've discussed in this uh, briefing and in the report are, are just as game-changing to enabling the command and control that will be required to give the U US forces the advantages they'll need in any future conflict. As Lucas said, these technologies aren't science fiction. They are mature and ready to transition to our warfighters. Frankly, now it's more a matter of finalizing the future force structure design and funding to make it happen. The technology barriers are not as steep as those first two. And David, with that, General Deptil, we'll turn it back over to you. Very good, thanks gentlemen uh, for that uh, overview. What I'd like to do now is give our panelists an opportunity to provide a few opening remarks on the presentation and on the subject in general. So let's start with Dr. Vost and then uh, Stephen, uh, you can finish up as a cleanup batter. So over to you, David. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be on the panel and uh, just really want to congratulate you on the timeliness of the report as you guys have written. Um, I, I absolutely concur with the criticality of the uh, uh, JADC2 vision and the ability to implement the interoperability and interconnectivity needs that you guys have identified both in your opening remarks and throughout the report. So uh, just a fantastic job on, on the report. Thank you for that work. And I strongly recommend it to the folks on the, on the net as an excellent primer to understand some of the opportunity space and the complexity of how to approach this hybrid space architecture in the term of SATCOM, both as we look to the terrestrial transport needs, um, as well as the celestial transport needs going forward. Both have to be thought in, in, in concurrence as we look to connect this interconnected and interoperable architecture of the JADC2 vision um, going forward. 
the, the challenge of knowing what is the topology uh, that we need to be able to acquire is I think what a lot of the, uh, where we're at today. And so depending upon what is your scope of who your user is, how your user needs to behave and the numbers of users, it really drives you to radically different um, potential transport architectures. And so when you, when you read the report, as you begin to think through the scope of uh, potentially the information synchronization that, that was identified between disparate C2 nubs, uh, nodes within an AOR, as well as the need to synchronize those C2 nodes with a CONUS uh, 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 kind of concept of operation as well. And then I begin, as you begin to look at the, uh, the, the variability of high priority users that have a very high mission assurance to the potentially the, the hundreds of thousands to millions of users that could take advantage of this within a, a coalition architecture, it really drives you to a, a complex understanding of what topology is the appropriate topology that we need to acquire, not only as a space force, but in partnership with our other US government agencies, as well as uh, our allies and the commercial market. And so um, I, I think the report just does a great job highlighting the opportunity space that sits in front of us um, going forward. I think in, in order to um, help capture, I think how we're thinking analytically about this uh, hybrid space architecture for for SATCOM, we we very notionally have bended into kind of into uh, into several categories. Um, when we we uh, describe what we've been referred to as a foundational layer, this foundational layer needs it's critical it embraces the multi-orbit um, aspects that are highlighted here that takes advantage of the global perspective that Geo brings as well as the proliferated nature that Leo brings. Um, this uh, this foundational layer is the natural inclusion of commercial capabilities within a diversified architecture. Um, it gives us that pathognostic capability that was identified, um, not only within a, a contested environment, just through the nature of the complexity of, of uh, delivering these communication systems for either you know, 5G or even future 6G applications, having redundant paths to different service provider, providers is critical not only for DoD applications, but also the resilience that we have all come to expect as an information as an information uh, world going forward. That's also a very natural location to ingest and bring in our allies, which are a critical part of our coalition strategy and how we want to move forward. Um, it is also the ability for us to regularly practice and implement this idea of path agnostic comms and this low latency need for this synchronization that has to go has to happen. It's an incredibly complex process that requires both an understanding of the physical layer and the networking layer and the application layer that has to be brought together uh, and the, how we practice and fight in that particular way. Then, then there are other layers that are more of the protected layers that, that really buy down on some potential vulnerabilities of this foundational layer. Um, as was identified within the report, we live in a contested space domain now where if all of our um, if, if our only strategy for communication is through a homogeneous path, it is too easy to interrupt that path if there's just one path. And so um, we need the ability to still have a, a subset of a protected layer. However, if, we, if that protected layer has to meet the, the totality of the requirements across all of the service components, across all of the globe, and be protected to, uh, through the entire, that's a very cost prohibitive strategy. And so as we look at this layered strategy, it's critical that we both understand the uh, the, the, the phenomenologies, the networking strategies, and the acquisition processes for, for being able to move both within this, this uh, diversified hybrid foundational layer and, and protected layer going forward. Um, and once again, I think the, the report did an excellent job identifying some of those, uh, some of those challenges. Um, I, I think some of the technologies that were highlighted are, are critical for us to rapidly move out on. Um, laser communications is a fantastic uh, uh, area that was highlighted that we need to continue to move forward on interoperability between disparate constellations, both within uh, a particular orbital regime like LEO or MEO or GEO, as well as interorbital regimes going forward. I think I, I just want to maintain the emphasis on the need to have both hybridity, not only within orbit regimes, but also within the phenomenologies of, of optical and RF. As we think of the diverse numbers of users, Lasercom is fantastic when you look at the, uh, the, the movement of data within uh, constellations or particularly a few or higher, higher value uh, users. But as we look at the thousands to millions, uh, hundreds of thousands to millions of users, it's very hard for the proliferation of laser. So RF is still a critical part of that hybrid architecture going forward. And so trying to understand the implication of when is it RF versus optical? How do we have those standards to be able to work 
within um, within those different phenomenologies to be as as interconnected as possible. And when do we choose not to be interconnected at the physical layer, but we back that out into the to the networking or the application layers, both within the cloud or or within um, some of the various application layers of the of the different programs. Um, hybrid adaptive terminals, I think, is critical. Understanding or having terminals that are able to be multi-service as well as multi-orbit um, is, is really an enabler for embracing these capabilities coming online and provides the user the ability to not have to bring many pieces of hardware into the field. Um, and so having hybrid adaptive terminals is critical to enable this vision, as well as the ability to have an automated service infrastructure that allows us to roam across uh, uh, various service providers based off a quality of service framework. That's also a very, uh, once again, as, as highlighted in the paper, that's a challenge in how we have traditionally acquired SATCOM services. It's also a challenge in how we uh, currently do a lot of our provisioning of the network that sits behind that. And so having the ability to both have the philosophical underpinning of what is the right uh, recipe for that, and then the uh, strategy validation experiments to be able to demonstrate that networking topology as well as the, uh, the, the, the costing and the procurement framework to be able to acquire that are, are, are critical things that we need to understand and wrap our heads around as fast as possible to enable this JADC2 vision um, that's going forward. Um, and then I think there's also a really important role that we need to understand of the, 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 the level of C2 uh, edge uh, versus uh, 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 um, centralized orchestration that needs to happen. Really in this foundational layer, the, the use cases are so large that it really would um, lean towards a very diversified uh, orchestration between commercial and allies, uh, similar to how the network is, the internet is managed today. Um, and so understanding how do we do those uh, edge synchronization events with the um, centrally orchestrated within the DoD framework is something we have to understand as well. Um, but I think I think there's much more I could say. But once again, thank you for the opportunity to be here and uh, and just a fantastic job on the report that you guys released over. OK, over to you, Stephen. Oh, thank you. I want to echo, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Moss. You know, this was a very timely report and, you know, also echo everything that, that uh, David said. You know, in this case, I'm really glad that I sit on the S&T side of things, you know, uh, developing uh, technologies, um, reducing the cost of laser comm terminals, uh, bringing more processing capability to space, and I'm not responsible for figuring out, you know, how operationally, you know, it gets uh, built out into an operational system. Uh, you know, the SWAC has a far harder job uh, than I do in this case. Um, you know, but I also, I fundamentally believe that the bandwidth and the power that LaserCom offers is a key enabler for any of the high data rate uh, communications. Um, whether that's terrestrial or space, I think it's it's well suited for both of those. Um, and so, for Blackjack, because we want to try and demonstrate a you know proliferated mesh uh, communications architecture, you know that is sort of foundational to proliferated Leo, and quite honestly, to a lot of you know, to any sort of proliferated space constellation, it doesn't really matter uh, whether it's Leo, Neo, Geo, Cis, Lunar. As, you, as soon as you start moving out of single-digit, uh, you know, spacecraft, the ability to stitch them all together in a resilient communication mesh is, is going to be a critical enabler to overcome those uh, the threats and the challenges that we face and and build a much less brittle architecture. Um, and optical is a great way of doing that. It's not well suited for serving mass users. Um, it is not well served for folks that have, uh, you know, weather or extremely limited swap, uh, you know, constraints. Um, and and that's why I also believe that, especially when you get out of the backhaul uh, sort of class of uh, or backbone class of. Uh, the portion of the network that RF will will always have its place uh, to serve the users. Um, you know, never underestimate the ability of doing like a UHF, you know, ten kilobit communication channel um, that essentially can fit in, you know, for the person's palm of their hand and works essentially in all weather and, and all environments. Yeah. So there will always be roles for for both domains. Um, you know, the other thing that's that we're tackling in addition to the communications, the laser comm is trying to bring some of that processing to space. Um, Leo is a very 
benign orbital environment uh, that allows us to bring a lot of modern processing up to the edge. You know, and that helps us, you know, from my view of the architecture, it gives the option of not having to move all of the data, you know, from sensor uh, in terms of like raw focal plane data to every user. It allows you to essentially decimate that data, get the key, you know, information uh, attributes out of that data stream and just dis disseminate those. And that's one of the places where I think Leo does have a, have a significant advantage over some of the other orbital regimes is because we can bring so much more processing and so much more of the modern processing architectures to bear there. Um, just the radiation environment at NEO and other domains makes that very, very challenging. So, um, but again, you know, uh, I'm fortunate that I sit at uh, on DARPA and get to push the technology and try and give as many different Lego building blocks uh, to David and to, the, to this acquisition community who will actually have to acquire operational systems. Um, so with that, I will uh, turn it back over to you. Okay, great. Thanks for that. And uh, what I'd like to do now is dig into some of the points uh, that you all have raised in greater detail. Um, so I'll direct my questions to each of you, but uh, any one of you feel free to jump in as you'd like. So first one for you, Stephen. Um, when it comes to satellites, historically lower cost tended to mean lower performance. Um, as we're talking about deploying large numbers of cheaper, smaller satellites in LEO. Uh, does that paradigm still hold true, um, particularly given recent advancements in areas such as uh, microelectronics and commercial space? Um, yeah, I would and, say uh, that, that the shift from geo to LEO, you know, knocking off 30 some thousand kilometers of, of path length and, and the associated losses, really actually helps you, um, you know, actually provide more capability potentially, you know, in terms of just absolute sensitivity at LEO than you would at GEO. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're looking for a set number of photons and whatever spectrum that they're out there. Um, and the ability to shrink the aperture because of, you know, either the R squared, R cubed, or R to the fourth losses, uh, you know, of LEO compared to GEO, really makes those low cost, uh, you know, payloads viable. When we started Blackjack, we weren't sure whether that was gonna hold true. Um, we were wondering whether we get one or two missions, one or two vendors that came in and said, you know, we can build a militarily relevant payload for, you know, a recurring cost of $1.5 million or less. Um, you know, we essentially got mission, got payload offerings across the full spectrum of, of space remote sensing and communications. Um, and PNT that were all viable, and we, you know, ultimately ended up, I believe, awarding about 13 payload contracts across eight or so different mission areas. Um, you know, now obviously most of those were simply initial uh, take a design to PDR, um, preliminary design review, uh, and flesh out the concept. So I, I think in this case that the the Reduced signal path length really allows Leo to play at a very price competitive point, and that's that is in you know wrapped into that ability to play is the microelectronics revolution, the cell phones, you know, just every the shrinking of of computers, you know, has really changed that paradigm and allowed us to put a lot of capability um, into a Leo spacecraft without having to because of the radiation environment you know, go up to an exquisite, expensive class of lower performing electro microelectronics. Oh, thank you for that. Um, Dr. Voss, with uh, all the excitement surrounding proliferated LEO, um, I think there's a danger in viewing it as a panacea and to forget about the potential of leveraging other orbits for SATCOM as well. Um, could you provide some insight into how the SWAC is thinking about leveraging SATCOM and multiple orbits as a part of a future a hybrid space architecture. I appreciate it. So I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's it's interesting. I I grew up in the new space community, so Leo to me was where we flew the majority of our small sats as we were launching them. And I have come to really grow to appreciate and understand a lot of the value that Geo brings to the community. Um, when you look at an information architecture as a whole. Each of the orbits bring a value function that uh, is, is nice to have at, at an enterprise level. And so um, 
you know, the, the, the ability to see the entire globe from geo, as, as your paper highlighted, really, really was why we went there from the first point. It gives you an efficiency both within the networking architecture, um, and it gives you the ability to see a very large geographic area, area but it brings apart some of those vulnerabilities that you talked about where a single lost asset could also result in a very large gap getting created. Leo helps address a number of those concerns. Um, as addition to what, uh, you know, what Stephen was saying, the R squared is very attractive when it comes to the physics of latency and whatnot going forward. Um, you know, the, the, the resiliency of the multi-orbit architecture is definitely an attractive component to it as well as you look at both the orbit diversity and the distributed nature of that architecture. Um, you know, late, the, the actual path lock loss latency um, is, is critical, but when you look at some of our aggregate latencies, if you think of the summation of all the things that make up latency within a kill chain or kill web, um, oftentimes the provisioning of the comm massively dwarfs the, or the networking synchronization part massively dwarfs the path loss within that as well. And so from a force designing standpoint, not only do we need to make sure that we take advantage of the LEO-based latency, but the networking that sits behind that and the understanding of who needs to talk to who, uh, both within a kind of an AOR, but also back to the synchronization in CONUS, really drives you to, we have to understand the networking latencies as well, which LEO is really challenged with. And those are some of the things that Steven is really trying to wrap his head around in terms of the, uh, the networking complexity that LEO brings to bear. Um, many of these cross-link options are fantastic, but they come with the whole networking complexity that sits behind it, especially when you start talking networking across different vendors um, going forward. And so we see a very strong role for uh, the various orbit regimes to come in both from a performance and capability standpoint, a resiliency standpoint, and a cost standpoint in an integrated architecture. I think that the challenge we're at right now as we're doing some of these big data analytics is what is the recipe and how much of each do you need against that JADC2 problem as you look up provisioning the various types of users across the different services. And so you have very natural users who will benefit very much from what, from what Steven is demonstrating or SDA is demonstrating. And you have other users who will benefit very naturally from a geo-based deployment what we want to make sure is that users have the ability within these hybrid terminals that if their preferred path is no longer available due to either you know a normal normal complexities or a, you know adversarial intent they have the ability to fall back to these other uh, capabilities even if it's not optimum it gives us within a primary alternate contingent emergency kind of a, a pace structure this graceful degradation across these uh, kind of hybrid space architectures and so um, I think we see a very strong role for the various orbit regimes. The question right now is, is what is that re recipe for them versus kind of that foundational layer and then this, uh, this kind of protected layer um, going forward? Uh, thank you. Um, General Chilton, uh, you and uh, Lucas touched on it a bit during the briefing, but I'd like to re-attack the subject of the threat environment. In uh, recent years, people have uh, often assumed that in a conflict with either China or Russia, um, RF SATCOM would be unavailable or highly degraded for aircraft and other platforms operating in contested areas. How could that impact US operations? And on the other side of the coin, how does having assured connectivity through laser comms uh, change things? Well, Lucas, I'll, I'll jump on that first and please, you know, Add what your views. Um, you know, as General Hyden has talked about, you know, the 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 large. Um, I think he said big, fat, juicy targets, which is our geosynchronous satellites. You know, we don't have a lot of them. They're incredibly capable, but they're incredibly vulnerable. And I find it hard to believe, given that they've demonstrated the capabilities to to reach those orbital altitudes with anti-satellite weapons, that our adversaries would not be planning on doing such to put themselves in an advantage uh, in the area of operations where we're gonna be fighting. And, and so um, that is the problem that we have to address. Now you can make them more maneuverable, but they are what they are right now and they're not very maneuverable. And so you can spend your dollars on making a highly maneuverable satellite up there. You can build an architecture that is more difficult for an adversary to take down. 
And that's what this combination of Leo Mio and Geo interlinked with optical communications would provide, would be a difficult, much more difficult architecture for an adversary to take down. Certainly not one they could take down on the first day of the war, which they could with our geostationary uh, satellite systems. Uh, but one, if they attacked, uh, would maintain a level of resilience long enough for us to counterattack. And that's important as, you, as we think about that. So, I mean, those are, those are my thoughts on uh, why we need to move in this direction, the advantages of it, uh, besides everything that David and Stephen have talked about already, of um, the various modalities we can provide to, with this architecture to the various users. Lucas, anything you'd like to add? Uh, just to, you know, yeah, just a little more on what you said, I think, um, you know, I think, yeah, what we're really talking about here is maintaining sufficient levels of connectivity to get the job done. But, you know, we're not just trying to sit back, uh, you know, and, and see how many punches our, our satellite constellations can take. This is about opening up options so that we can also go and get done what we need to get done. So I, I think it's not just all about the defensive. And I think, sir, this is something that you've highlighted before, right? We need to pair this with our own capabilities to go on the offensive as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd foot stomp that, you know, I'd spend my first dollar, frankly, on offensive capability um, because right now they have it and we don't, which means they can deny us our space capabilities and retain their own. And that's totally an unsatisfactory environment to send our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and guardians into, in my view. But this is also a critical element, and that is building a future architecture that also contributes to deterrence by planting the seed in an adversary's mind that they won't be able to successfully eliminate this critical capability that our whole command and control environment is going to depend on in the future. Um, well, thank you both for that. And uh, while there's a heck of a lot more to uh, discuss, what I want to do is uh, open this session up to Q&A from the audience. Uh, so just as a reminder, um, it, all of you can participate by uh, either sending in a on the Q&A uh, chat or use the raise hand function. Uh, please do state your uh, name and affiliation when uh, you ask a question. So with that, um, let's go first to uh, Teresa Hitchens. Hi, this is Teresa Hitchens from Breaking Defense and thanks to you all for doing this. It was really interesting. Um, my question is for Dr. Voss. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about the SWAT's work on creating a force design for um, a hybrid architecture for SATCOM, and when you think you might come up with a product, um, like where you're at in that process. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, I appreciate the question. Uh, not fast enough from what we've been told. Uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, there's a lot of complexity in, in, uh, you know, in, in, in an architecture such as this. There's a lot of what I, what I like to refer to as competing value function analysis. Um, there are many great ways to tackle this problem, and depending on your scope of the user, it naturally would lend to, to a very logical um, topology for, for that particular scope of user. So what we're in the process right now of doing is really trying to understand the complexity of the diverse user base across the various services and how they could leverage a space-based integration capability and then understand what is the orbital deployment strategy based off of the diversity of the user types and how they want to use it. Um, and then also trying to analytically anchor what within a acquisition model, there is kind of one end of the trade space is what happens if the DOD really um, procured the majority of this hybrid architecture approach, or what if we had a very robust commercial multi-orbit space capability that we embraced and we had more of the DOD focus on the protected layer. Though that's a very large dynamic range from both a capability and a deployment strategy that we're trying to wrap our head around and uh, teased out the, uh, the topological implications of that, that, that world. And so, you know, it will, be a, it will be a work in progress for a while. However, as, as was highlighted at the beginning of this, this event, um, we, we can't wait years to do analytics and make decisions. And so um, uh, we, we are implementing at the SWAC a continuous integration model of, of analytic processes that allow us to start be able to understand the macro implications of this topology as fast as possible to help inform the current uh, POM and plan efforts and, uh, and, and start aligning as fast as possible our, either our current investments that might require um, pivots or uh, where do we need to put those first dollars to get the max uh, benefit out of this architecture. So um, 
it will be a continuous kind of uh, integration process that's co-aligned with the POM and the plan. And uh, hopefully, um, you know, is, think of it like a funnel. We're going to continue to integrate more and more with uh, with our acquisition partners, SSC, um, uh, uh, and and the uh, the SQ staff, as well as some of the other um, space-based acquisition partners like SDA and others. So, can I just ask a clarifying question? You mentioned right up front. So part of this analysis is actually starting from what capabilities do the users have to integrate into the orbital architecture which seems to me to be something that wasn't done before generally that it was the other way around um in that the services are the ones that have to pay for their own terminals and things like that so i just want to make sure i heard that correctly thank you so we're, we're evaluating the implication of the orbital deployments against a variety of of uh user terminal um implications is maybe the way to phrase that so you could envision a handful of implications for users. Um, so we're, we're, we're trying to wrap our heads around what happens if we had a user equipment that, that had the minimal amount of change, you weren't allowed to touch the hardware. What could we do in space to help enable JADC2 concepts for those users where they can't really upgrade or change their terminals? That's kind of the first category. The second category is what if we were able to upgrade terminal hardware, potentially firmware, or maybe some of the front end analog, analog uh, circuitry but you're still fundamentally constrained by the swap that the users have. That would be kind of a second category of user implications. And then the third category is what happens if we if we kind of had a clean slate and we were able to embrace um, this hybrid terminal construct that is able to roam across Leo, Mio, or Geo um, and different service providers, which is definitely, an, it, it's, it's a very, it would be a, a new terminal procurement with a very large cost implication for our partners within the different services. And so, from a space force standpoint, we really want to be um, uh, very cognizant and aware of the implication of the orbital deployment strategy to the user hardware going forward. And so we have a couple categories as we look at that orbital deployment strategy. Over. Thank you. That that helped a lot. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, let's turn to uh, David Shaw. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. Yeah, excellent. Okay, great, great program. Thanks. Could you all speak to the um, uh, securing the transmission? I put that in the Q&A so you can disregard the question there. But regardless of orbit, um, it seems to me that there's a, a massive threat on the cyber side of state, uh, non-state actors um, doing non-attributable mischief in the uh, securing of the transmissions. And again, I probably haven't had a chance to read the report because I just downloaded it about five minutes ago. So it may be addressed in there, I don't know, but thank you. Well, I don't think we, we go into great detail on that threat, but it's certainly one we uh, recognize. And uh, so, I mean, you're, David, your point's exactly right. Uh, the entire space enterprise, whether it's SATCOM, ISR, GPS, uh, whatever we have to worry about um, the cybersecurity, both of the ground uh, architecture that supports the satellite systems, the TTNC, the command channels that go up and back uh, to those satellite systems. All of those are, are areas that need to be protected and they're vulnerable not only to cyber, but also to kinetic strikes. And so we need to consider all of those things as we go forward, regardless of the architecture. Maybe I could just jump in too. I, you know, I, I think this is a really exciting opportunity for the community to embrace some of the lessons we've learned from the terrestrial deployment of the internet as we begin to deploy this uh, space internet kind of construct where we can build in at both the physical layer and the networking layer some of the uh, security measures, uh, things like ledger-based authentication capabilities, uh, you know, transec and and uh, you know, multi-point encryption. Um, there's a lot of technical complexity to that, that we, uh, we have the opportunity to, to, to start off the right way as we're really at this pivotal point going forward. So um, definitely not a, not a one, 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 uh, not definitely not a simple answer or a, sim a single technology to fix the whole problem, but just a real opportunity, particularly for our, our industrial community to, to start off with a lot of the right foundation as we begin to deploy this kind uh, of, kind of architecture over. And, and lastly, David, thanks for mentioning. I think uh, you know using the optical links will provide us an additional 
options for uh, being more flexible in our encryption and, and how, how we uh, exchange data on orbit more securely. Okay, Norm, I'll give you another chance. Were you able to fix your problem there? I have, and uh, my question is for uh, Dr. Voss there. I realize uh, a lot of our discussion has been uh, somewhat long-term, but what are we doing? Or is there low-hanging fruit that we can bring into the AOC so that we can better fight tonight and get after the type of things that our chief's looking for in the way of uh, accelerate our decision-making, uh, better comms, uh, a more robust pace plan, so to speak, as we go more into distributed operations over. Great question. I, I think, um, you know, I, I think there's a certain amount of uh, cultural impediment to the, uh, the way that uh, this architecture is brought to bear than how we've traditionally fought, fought with SATCOM that we need to address. Um, you know, oftentimes you still think of having human orchestrated scheduling. We have uh, human in the loop uh, uh, driving a significant portion of this um, of our of our current SATCOM architecture or our AF or our uh, um, scheduling of our uh, satellite operations. Um, it is a very challenging model for scaling to the levels that we're talking about within the JADC2 and the timelines that are associated for that. So I I think as we begin to embrace these hybrid terminals and the networking that sits behind that. I think as fast as possible, we need to start understanding not only the technical implications of this type of it, but start to understand what are the operational impacts. How do we do our O plans around this? And that's a that's a that's a, something that we need to begin to, to to practice and operate off of now. When you begin to look at some of the AFRL exercises with uh, partnering with um, you know Starlink or uh, there's there's significant capability out there right now, and I think we need to begin to understand the um the the human element in addition to the complexity of the networking element and how we do the orchestration as opposed to the actual lower level scheduling portion of that much of that is well sit, uh, uh, suited right now to be able to embrace the, the other thing we need to do is wrap our heads around um, a variable trust architecture we currently sit very much in either trusted boundary or untrusted boundary and there's a nature of uh, as you begin to embrace more of these uh, paths, there's a there, there's a bit more granularity to how we leverage certain communication pipes or certain information sources that we need to begin to, uh, to to practice and understand. And so I think that's another thing we can't wait. There's already some great work going on at AFRL um, as well as other places. And how do we work on these multi-path as well as multi-information source architectures? But that's something we can't wait until we figure the technical part out. It's very much need to be driven by the warfighter um, as the users of that information and the trust of that path. And, and once again, the, the uh, processes that they already work on, such as the ATO process, already takes into the account ambiguity of information into a decision-making process. I think space needs, it, it needs to catch up in the uh, thinking process because of the diversity of, and the variable trust of information sources that are available today that, that have not been there in the past. Over. Well, thanks for that. And I hope at the uh, C2 summit coming up in about a week and a half, uh, maybe some of that the discussion can be brought into the room there. Over. Okay, we're quickly coming up on the uh, end of time. Let me go to one of uh, uh, multiple questions that was sent in uh, on the uh, chat line. This is from uh, uh, Joe uh, Vander Porton. Uh, pardon my pronunciation there, Joe, but Here's your, his question. Crosslink satellites offer intriguing possibilities to recast SATCOM. The underlying SATCOM enterprise, however, is fragmented across governance, industry, equipment standards, and user cultural communities. Did the Mitchell Group look at Space Force governance and enterprise management structures to unify concept pursuit to meet the China threat? Um, I'm going to take that one on uh, because it, it is a fascinating question uh, and it's extraordinarily pertinent. Um, and we didn't specifically in this particular report, um, but that is a topic that we will be reporting on in uh, 2022. Um, as a broad answer, yeah, the first step that could be taken is to follow some of the uh, rationale for standing up the Space Force in the first place in terms of unifying 
the vast number of disparate organizations with a hand in space. Uh, but obviously there's a lot, much more that uh, goes into that. But thanks very much for your question, Joe. That's something we're gonna address in the future. That being said, ladies and gentlemen, we've uh, come to the end of our uh, Mitchell Institute uh, Space Power Advantage Center of uh, Excellence rollout of our policy paper, the backbone of JADC2, Satellite Communications for Information Age Warfare. Um, many of you have already asked online, but it's available on the Mitchell Institute website right now. And we'll get this entire video and the uh, slides up uh, shortly. So to General Chilton, uh, Lucas, uh, Stephen, and David, uh, many thanks for sharing your insights into these issues. And uh, from all of us at the Mitchell Institute, uh, Space Power uh, Center of Excellence, have a great aerospace power kind of day.